Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep these podcasts free for everyone. For you, it's a couple of quid to us. It's lights on, bills paid, mics on, and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. What we're asking you to do is, is take that 30 seconds it's going to take you to click that link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It's at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now and join us. And it's not a one-way street. You get tons of additional content, including this week alone, conversations with UK economist Grace Blakely and all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed. So whether it be Shrapnel, Echo Chamber, Glow West, Reboot Republic, any of them, they're all in one feed and they're all plea-free so you don't have to listen to me beg. So if you like what we do, one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. Me, your host, Sam McElwain, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Gareth Mulvana. How are you, Gareth? Not too bad, Sam. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It's it's starting to feel a bit more, I don't know, somebody wintry out there. I think we're getting a heat wave, but it's 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 going well. I'm quite positive. If you've read my Twitter feed, I'm actually quite buzzed about shrapnel at the minute. I think it's flowing well. Yeah, we're we're doing doing a good job and yeah, taking on a good good sort of momentum. Yeah, and everybody seems to like our guests, so hopefully this one won't let us down. No pressure at all. Oh, absolutely no 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 chance that will happen. That'll be it'll be great. It'll be great. <laughs> Sure, what could possibly go wrong? So tonight we have Claire Mitchell, who's a former academic in sociology and is the author of The Ghost Limb, which I have made my way through over the last couple of days. So hello, Claire. How are you doing? Hi, Yves. How's it going? Thank you so Hi, much for having me. And you're very good to have waited your way through it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I say I say weird. It wasn't exactly weird as I was fighting against the current. I actually flowed pretty well and I've actually picked out a few bits and pieces to sort of, I don't know, pickle your head with tonight um, and get you to explain a bit more if that's okay. Good stuff. Uh, I suppose the first thing I'm going to pick up on is the word dissenter, which you use a lot of, um, and which also plays into the word lumpy. Um, could you explain for those who are listening who don't know what a dissenter is? Well, dissenters were kind of a breakaway from the Protestant religion um they didn't subscribe to the established church and they set up their own churches primarily presbyterianism or the quakers which my parents are in now or reformed presbyterians who's i think nearly 60 um protestant denominations in the north and uh, most of those would probably be dissenting yeah it certainly is something to think about for people as in it's not just i don't know Protestant Catholic, that there is that sort of area where the, it still is of a Protestant faith, but it's not quite subscribing to what people would think that the Protestants in, in Northern Ireland should be subscribing to. And, and it, as I said, it does feed into that Lundy. So we we always have a negative connotation of Lundy. Uh, if you're called the Lundy, especially from where I'm from, it, it, it's, it's one of the most sort of vitriolic sort of insults. Where the centre sort of sits a bit better. You know, it, it sort of feels a bit more comfortable. Would you agree with that? I actually love the word dissenter. It brings like to mind loads of thrandness and free thinking and being a pain in the arse, all the kinds of things that I like. I wanted initially to call the book kind of modern dissenters, but then a few historian friends kind of made it clear to me that um if I wanted to write a book about my kind of sense of the North and Northern Ireland and politics, it was maybe a bit lefty and a bit Irish and it maybe wasn't a good word to use because it's a word that's shared by like really conservative people, covenanters, you know, and that it was, wasn't really my word to take and claim. So I made up alternative Protestants then. <laughs> <laughs> But as a just as a kind of a loose d- descriptor, um, but dissenter is a word. Yeah, I love it. I think the thing that really interests me, Claire, and I remember way at the start when you were planning on writing the book, we had some conversations on Twitter. What comes across really strongly, and I think it's a really good approach to history because it is a book about history as well. 
it's it's a travel log basically in many respects and that's what i really enjoy because what i like is the fact that you go out you try and sense the history by the physical presence by the people you talk to so it's not just you know somebody sitting looking at books and um artifacts you're actually out walking around uh, the north of ireland and, and talking to people so can you talk a wee bit about that approach and what way it informed your writing and and also i suppose the self-discovery that you embarked upon Despite being a former academic, I should say I didn't get formered because I didn't like <laughs> reading academic books. Um, I, I left for, um, for health reasons. But yeah, I'm not really a book learner, Gareth. Like it, I did read as much as I could about the United Irishmen and that period of history. But it, it was just it was living in a compartment in my head. It wasn't really like alive in my life. And I suppose then I started working on the book at the time of lockdown and we were all kind of desperate for human conversation and we were all kind of a bit kind of repressed and like it was kind of a tense political time as well. So instead of doing what I would have done for research in the past, which is arrange an interview in somebody's kitchen and you sit there kind of awkwardly and you break your way in over a cup of tea. And um, we just chose sites that meant something to the people in the book. There's nearly 20 people in the book and people just picked places that were meaningful to them. And there was something about the energy of walking in a place. And I don't know whether it's because you're charging side by side, you know, you're not making eye contact. Maybe there was just less kind of pressure on people, but it really seemed to unlock something. And I think that was to do with the sites that we chose as well, because um, like I've always lived in quite Protestant Unionist loyalist areas of the north. And the sites we were going to were largely 1798 sites, but also kind of sites of socialist or working class history or the lead mines and Newton Ards is one of them. And they're not things that we really mark out in these places as being like really important. And so we kind of felt like we were on a communal journey of discovering, rediscovering the places where we lived. And that was, I don't know, it just brought it alive and unlocked something. Yeah, I feel what Gareth is saying is it's quite personal for us because we shrapnel came from similar walks together uh, and having those conversations. So I I can relate to that. We also tend to go places sometimes that are meaningful to us. So whether it be up around the Shankle or the Cathedral Quarter at one point, Gareth was doing a bit of research in, in the events around there. It sort of, as you said, brings it alive. And the other thing I like about this and, and the 1798 period that you go into, it's around the areas that I know and live in. And it allows me to look at them in a different way. I mean, I was in a graveyard on Sunday because there was graves in there that you'd pointed out in the book. And I went and had a look around. I'd driven past that graveyard twice a day, every Monday to Friday for, for months. And I never looked at it in that way. And then I went in and plundered around the old church ruins and the old graves. And the history in there is, is quite phenomenal. Um, and Gareth's right, it is a travel log as such. I mean, some of the sites you go to are, are rural, but the ones that grabbed me the most were the alleys in Belfast. Um, can, you, can you talk a bit about what's been done in the, around those alleys to bring that history to life? Um, yeah, friends of mine were involved in a street art project. Um, and 1798 isn't really marked very much. There's no history really marked in the city centre. It was kind of deliberately kept as a sort of a neutral space, you know, and I am... I don't really, I'm not personally likes to iron out all these histories, like pile it on. You know, I like weird costumes and flags and like for places to be interesting. But the city centre, um, the tour guides there find it frustrating because there's nothing really to show people in the 1798 tours. So some friends of mine um, were making a, hist a history project on the walls that related to the entries and alleys in Belfast. And that's where the United Irish stuff kicked off in the 1790s, like the very same alleys that we're walking through today. And they kind of read through old newspapers, did some research on these kind of unloved and, and hidden places, really. It's a good metaphor for the book. It's like right there, you know, I, I don't know if you grew up in the same kind of around in shops. That's where I had a sneaky cigarette down the side of it and cheap cup of tea, listening to the pixies, you know, down in the alleyways there. Um, and I never knew anything about their connection to United Irish histories. 
So the guys were working with the council and in a way what they ended up doing is quite subtle, but I really liked it. They gave a bunch of local and I think some international artists 1798 kind of reference points in the wider kind of industrial history of the alleys and entries and they just let them have at it. And what emerged was there's some kind of anti-slavery ones that reference 1798. There's some, there's like the little word equality is kind of spread around. They're, they're little Easter eggs, little kind of hidden designs in a way. I mean, and that in turn provoked further interesting conversation about the alleys and entries because that was much too subtle for some people. You made the word equality and then you hit it, is what uh, one of my Republican friends said to me. So the alleys and the entries, like, it's beautiful to look at, but for me, it was just like this place of my childhood and grunge music in the 1990s that just contained all of this gorgeous history that um, exploring it in the present helped me to meet way more people than I ever would have met and have more awkward, difficult, contested, but fascinating discussions with a wider range of people. And I love that it's there. And I would encourage anybody to to get down and see if they can find equality in the alleys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're just bringing back memories of um, getting chucked out of the wee Carnaby store in, in shops yeah. by the wee, wee man who used to own that place. You'd go in. I remember getting off tangent here, but remember seeing a New Order t-shirt that I really liked and trying to go into the shop and he just threw us out. Because he didn't want anyone in the shop, so I don't I don't know what that was about. But even thinking about well, people three hundred years from now be going looking for the side of the the in shops. It's it's weird. <laughs> it's sort of just it's brought it back to me myself. You know, growing up in the nineties as well. So yeah, but I mean, one thing I find really interesting, Claire, and I'm going to read a wee bit from the book, which I know when people do that to me, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But just to give context to what I'm going to ask, I just want to repeat the wee bit. So. You say, I try to imagine myself in the 1790s in a deeply anti-democratic state with no rights as a citizen, land confiscated, barred from many aspects of life, my language denied, my religion persecuted, reform was on the way, but could my family wait? There can also be a violence in waiting too long. People die from that too. Would my thoughts be different if I was a man or a woman, rich or poor? I suspect some versions of me would have lifted a pike but my imagination strains. Now, I found that really hit me hit me square in the face. It was really powerful because one of the approaches I've often taken in my writing is to try and put myself in scenarios. And obviously the past that I write about is, is much closer, so it's even more uncomfortable. But I think one, the phrase that came to me when I was thinking about the way you've approached that, the way you've put yourself in, in the 1790s and tried to understand what it would have been like. To me, that's the empathy of creation. You're empathizing, you're trying to gra- go into the granular detail of what it would have been like to have existed at that time. For me, that might be going back to 1960s Belfast, 1970s Belfast again. And I've talked openly here before about how that can be mentally exhausting, even trying to put yourself in those dark places. So what was it like to try and inhabit a time that's so far removed and not as well appreciated within the Protestant community as maybe it might be? Oh, wow, that's such a good question. Um, Part of the reason I wrote it like that, I kept writing the history chapter, you know, which you're supposed to preface all books with, and it was so boring. And it just wasn't the way, like at this point I was feeling it in my gut and in my heart, and I just wanted to try and write it, like, yeah, like you're saying, with empathy and imagination. And like on one hand, with the United Irishmen, I was finding so many things that I connected with. Do you know their democratic thinking, their civic republicanism, their anti-sectarianism? But also, <laughs> 1798 was a rebellion. I was raised as a pacifist. <laughs> you know, uh, we used to have like CND magazines coming through the door, and like my parents were real hippies in that regard. And like I've said, they're Quakers now with nonviolence as a a key tenet. So that was huge in my life. So it was really interesting for me to get inside that moment and go like, 
what was the pike like how was that a good way to do it and try to imagine it like yeah creatively imagine myself with that pew rights and like presbyterians dissenters were not allowed to get married legally their children were illegitimate couldn't have weapons i wouldn't want a weapon but do you know they weren't allowed high office or um there were so many restrictions like that and after a while in the 1790s um they started getting in trouble for talking and writing and the example i use in the book is that i find a pub really near my house um was burned to the ground because there was a rumor of a hint that they might have talked about seditious united irish ideas there so talking about democracy in a pub you know and something I quite like to do so it, it kind of brought up a lot of, of questions for me like if that was illegal and you could be put to death for that which people were um hmm like I think I think that empathy I am believe in non-violence but I can imagine myself in various situations and what is the thing that might have snapped me I think when you live in a place like Northern Ireland, which is so hurt and we've so there's so much pain and we've um we've done violence and people in our family are victims, survivors, perpetrators, whatever. I think it's really helpful to to kind of navigate that with your heart and um, putting yourself in other people's shoes rather just with kind of logic and intellect. You're talking there about using logic and intellect and and you being a pacifist and, and trying to imagine violence as, as the answer. I mean, as part of your sort of journey through uh, through your academia and life, you, you came across Billy Mitchell, who's no relative. Um, but Billy was on an entirely different trajectory when he was a younger man uh, and then changed his methods of how he wanted to, to, to live his life. And Gareth is another perfect testament to this of how how... As people, we are not like them, but we can understand them or we can be empathetic to them and listen to them. I mean, Billy to me, Billy Mitchell to me was, legend is the wrong word, but he was very influential. You know, when Billy spoke, I listened. Um, and, and, and other people did that. And I noticed that that happened in the room when Billy opened his mouth and started to put together the sentences. The room went quiet and everybody settled and listened. What was Billy like on a day-to-day basis for you? I loved Billy Mitchell. I did not I grew up with loyalism at all. I mean, my parents were in a charismatic um, kind of evangelical movement, but born-again Christians, Catholics and Protestants, they were trying to live this kind of anti-sectarian life. And that was an amazing way to grow up. But as a result, they kind of kept us away from anything they thought would get us into trouble. And uh, I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this, but that was republicanism and loyalism. So that was sort of where I was, you know, nice, hippie, <laughs> whatever, academic. And I don't know if Billy Mitchell knocked on my door or he phoned me one day or how it all came about. It was in the early 2000s. And he says, so um, I've got this loyalist organization. We are doing transformation and peace. And would you like to come along and be part of the process? I He had found something I'd written, some like obscure academic thing. He was so clever, wasn't he? And I don't know how he even found it, but he thought it was good for some reason. And after talking to him for about an hour, I just realized, okay, you've got a past, you've made choices. I do not personally feel close to loyalism, or I didn't before then, but obviously Billy Mitchell and spending those years with him, he's a hugely charismatic figure. He was so anti-sectarian. He was really committed to peace and transformation. And um, I spent a couple of years sort of being, lending my whatever voice or writing skills I had to kind of get the word out about the work that they were doing and you know I didn't need to be a loyalist to really be moved by that work and to really believe in what they were doing like David Irvine was around then as well Don Purvis and like I voted for the PUP all of those years you know until kind of before Don Purvis left 
because they're offering socialism and feminism at that time. Like those, uh, I was voting um, against my constitutional preference. Like I've always wanted a reunified Ireland. But when faced with people who loved their communities, who were doing this great politics, there wasn't really any, like, that wasn't a conflict for me. That was very obvious. And a lot of people in the book were sort of um, very moved and committed to and, and voted for the PUP during those years as well. So, like, I suppose if I think of the vibe of that time, loyalists get a lot of, like, things have gone in a different direction now. But at the time, what, I mean, the mental image that I conjure, right, is sitting in freezing buildings with a super sour heater and like chipped coffee cups and like people quite traumatized by what they've been through because conflict wasn't that far behind and like very kind of shaky and then the phones would be going like all hours of the day and night and people would be jumping to answer them get out to the interface and defuse a riot and like I've never seen graft like that before I was having a wee look at the thing I'd written about that at the time and the example that just really sticks out to me still was there was a, a we worked with some statutory organizations around this because they were working with the the loyalist guys at the time and certain issues restorative justice and whatever and the stat and had interviewed somebody working for a statutory agency and they said we were at this kind of anti-racism seminar and there was a guy there with like white nazi tattoos and I just find that really shocking and <laughs> do you know and then the Billy and, and Lois guys but like we're doing an anti-racism event in our own community who else can do this job and that really spoke to me and that's something I still think about um, when I think about loyalism today like who else is putting their hand up for that and like at the time, I mean, politics weren't loyalist, to be honest. They were probably more Republican. And things got messy around the edges sometimes. And then, you know, you'd, you'd <laughs> put your name to something and then the next day something happened. You'd go, oh, God, I don't agree with that at all. But the heart of it was so good and what was driving it, I just found um, so sincere at that time that it was, um, yeah, a really formative time in my life. Challenged everything I thought I knew about loyalism. I've never felt the same since and I hope that I've kind of carried that on even though I've been working on different topics and subjects. I hope that that kind of heart has carried on. I'm going to flip this on its, on its head slightly and I actually only ask Gareth a question. Um, okay. I have jumped I've jumped in there. I'm not putting you on the spot, mate. Uh, <laughs> I jumped in there and sort of asked Claire about Billy Mitchell but for people listening who don't know Billy, who Billy Mitchell was, do you want to give a brief background from, from the stuff that you've written in your books? About Billy? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the thing that keeps sticking in my head in relation to Claire's recent work, The Ghost Limb, is, you know, one of the phrases Billy used around the time of the whole controversy around decommissioning was he talked about, you know, the guns that the UVF had as being like the pike in the thatch. So when you're talking about the pike there, it's sort of, you know, that analogy that it's, you know, the, it, it, it does what it says. So it goes back to that era of history that you're you're so passionate about. Well, suppose for, for people who are listening, Billy Mitchell was a member of the UVS Brigade staff in the in the mid-70s. He was uh, based in East Antrim, Carrick direction, um, and he would have been very influential in setting up Combat, which was a UVF periodical, which in itself, I think, when Claire's talking about Billy there, it reminds me of a lot of what was in Combat. It was almost like a laboratory of ideas that were often contradicted one another in the same issue. But that was Billy, that was the paradox, because he had all these different ideas, he was very busy, he was obviously a very militant person, he was eventually um, involved in, in uh, convicted of murder, it was an inter-loyalist feud, but, you know, a lot of the political ideas he was putting forward, the community ideas, I know at that time, you know, combat was running a lot about the Save the Shankle campaign, Jackie Redpath was in one of the early covers as well, with the a lovely uh, wispy beard, but you know that that to me speaks to what we often talk about loyalism. Because somebody would say to me, "What what what is loyalism, Gareth?" And obviously, I'm not from, so I can't really say authoritatively. But if I had to point anyone uh, to a person that embodies the contradictions within loyalism, it would be Billy Mitchell. And I mean contradictions in a positive sense. I don't mean the negative sense. 
because he was always trying to find new ideas, new ways forward, new ways to communicate, new ways to challenge people. And ultimately, I think that's one of the strengths and weaknesses of loyalism, because eventually I think that's where it becomes very entangled and confusing for people. And then there is no narrative that can carry things forward, that can galvanize a cause. Because if you look at republicanism, it's 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 slightly more straightforward. The the end goal is uh, you know there's a clear vision, whereas loyalism is less tangible. So I think talking about Billy brings up a lot of different feelings. And I mean, I asked Billy when I was doing PhD that you know the famous one that I've talked to Sam about is what is a loyalist? What is loyalism? And like Billy just laughed at me and said, "Well, what is starting with an easy question?" And then he went on to talk about his own identity. You know, how he liked Catherine Jenkins, how he liked traditional Irish music, how he liked a bit of orange music, um, how he, he wouldn't regard himself as a monarchist, but he thinks Betty, Queen Betty, as he called her at the time, would have embodied a sort of figurehead that people could rally around. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're loyal to the idea of monarchy, but it's a figurehead. So, yeah, th- that's basically me going off on a tangent. But yeah, he was a very influential UVF um, officer on the brigade staff and became a very influential strategist and politician well into the 1990s, and did a lot of really good work in the community as well, um, with the um, Link Resource Centre, I think it was, Claire, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Loyalist Initiative for Needy Communities, maybe. Needy Communities, yeah. language that we probably wouldn't use today. Yeah. And he was also like a Christian socialist, so by the time I met him in the 2000s, um, he was really kind of driven by his fear. And which was a, such a like a social, socially aware, social economic justice faith, and I guess that was the tradition that I had grown up in as well. So I, I really recognised that, yeah. and I think he was so clever because like, I was listening to you guys talking to John Barry the other week, and John was saying like, why don't loyalists use a framework of human rights? But if you put that to Billy, he was talking about. The principles of loyalism and religious and civil liberties and these you know that was a loyalist kind of language that was relatable for human rights and I think the way that he kind of interpreted he took big ideas from what was going on in the ether and like spoke to his people and took ideas back David Erblein obviously played a similar role I think that was yeah really kind of brilliant and unique skill I think it was a really interesting time as well, even within republicanism. And you had that with the blanket, you know, the the magazine and Billy would have been writing articles. Tommy Gorman would have been pitching it from the Republican side, which again, we talk about the idea of dissenters. I mean, Tommy was a dissenter from within the provisional Republican movement. And I know Billy would have said things that were probably unpopular with the UVF at the time. Um, and I think we could do with more of that critical analysis from within these overarching frameworks. I think there was that really golden period in the nineties and early noughties when you were working with Billy that, you know, we're maybe missing a wee bit now. And it's, it's sad that it's disappeared. It was, it was a moment that was so alive with possibility. And, you know, just one of my strongest memories is like, as I said, I hadn't really grown up around republicanism either. That's a word that I've worked through in my head more recently and going, oh, actually, yeah, that's probably what I am. But I, you know, wasn't connected in any way with Republican communities and never been up the falls. But watching Billy and those loyalist ex-prisoners and their relationships with the Republican ex-prisoners, that was meaningful. They were it, it wasn't just a surface engagement or a box ticking exercise. It was real soul searching stuff and a period of our politics that like, I kind of missed, to be honest. Yeah, they, yeah. I said to you the other day, they were, they were halcyon days at that point. Um, yeah. and, and Gareth mentions Tommy Gorman there. I mean, I know Tommy Gorman and Billy Hutchison both worked in the Springfield Inter Community Development Project. And those guys worked hourless. Days, you know, they they blended in the in the sort of one blob every now and again because if they were working during the day on the projects and funding, they were sometimes working at nights at the interface series as well. Um, and people don't give them credit for that. I mean, I I I had the the probably just probably the right word to speak to Tommy Gorman because it was a it was an education to be able to sit down with somebody who at that point in my life I was looking at he's he's the other side he's evil he's he's a provy, um, but be able to sit and have a conversation. And have a debate 
and have to hold my own in a room with, with Tommy and bounce the ideas. And some of the things we agreed on, uh, I'm socialist-minded and so was Tommy, but there was other things obviously we didn't agree on. But it was good to be able to do that. And as I said before, I, I take some some pelters every now and again on, on the, the old direct messages on Twitter. Uh, I'm either one or the other, depending on who the guest was and how they, they viewed my conversation with them. But I, I like to stir the shit slightly within loyalism as well, because... I think we need to agitate it. It needs to be freshened up. And the only way to do that, as Gareth said, is critical thinking. So if I have to critique it to do that, it doesn't make me any less of a loyalist. But what it does, it, it allows me then to get others to discuss things and, and try and be, if it doesn't evolve, it's going to go stale. And that's just the way it is. Um, and I, I think that's where Billy Mitchell and Davey and Plum and Eddie and all the rest of them came together at that one point in time. They'd come through the prison system together. They had been gathered on their on their gusty and they sort of they put new ideas forward and again as Gareth said UVF probably didn't like a lot of what was going on at that point it took a lot of uncomfortable conversations to, to move it along but to have that to have that band of people together at the one time and I think what the, we don't do as well is when we're talking about these guys there was a lot of uh, women in the PUP at that point who were working tirelessly in the background I, I attended a few branch meetings on the Woodville uh, and women outnumbered the men two to one at least. Um, and as I uh, was messaging yesterday before this pod, Claire, and I was mentioning about being at the uh, party conference mid-90s, and there was a motion on same-sex marriage. I mean, they truly were progressive for progressive unionists. At that point, they were they were years ahead of everybody else coming behind them. Uh, and that seems to be forgotten. So that sort of links to me to the 1798 gang that you're talking about. They were progressive of their time. And they were off the community first, and everything else second. It it was it was so so um, uplifting to be a, to be around in those days. But how do we get back there? Have you any bright ideas on, on where we go forward with this? Yeah, and I think you're already doing it. I think in the podcast and these conversations, it's just opening things up to friendship, relationships, ideas. Like I think where we've gone wrong in this place is we've. Uh, assumed that culture is something that must be preserved carefully against the odds, put white gloves on. That's not an Orange Order reference, it's an archivist. <laughs> you know, just um, that it, it's something that we pickle in a jar and revere, but that's not how culture works. There, you know, my friend Stephen Baker in the book has very locked down <laughs> middle class. He would hate that because he's <laughs> really working class. But his sourdough, you need bacteria in to like make the thing live and grow and breathe. You know, so ideas don't work, I think, in the modern world when they're pure because they don't reflect any of the messiness of any just of the three of our daily lives, which are very diverse and vibrant and complicated <laughs> in various ways. So I think stop. This isn't my advice to anybody. It's just what I've done in my own life. Stop trying to curate, you know, my culture. Like I'm so loose with like my own language and like I don't want to invent a new tribe of alternative Protestants and gatekeep the boundaries of that. I was going to say I don't want to dress up in funny costumes and reenact stuff, but I actually but have. you do. It sounds like, yeah, <laughs> you've already that. said you do. <laughs> With some of the 1798 stuff. I mean, somebody, uh, yeah, I have avoided the costumes so far. But, like, I think one of the things, like a history society I'm involved with, Reclaim the Enlightenment, Um, the push is always to look at the history of the 1790s and ask what it means for now. And sometimes that is actually losing some of the stuff that the 1798 guys were into. For example, the fact that most of them were dudes and that pikes were <laughs> seen as a good plan and that some of them were like sugar merchants, right, supporting the slavery movement and that some of them um, were union busters <laughs> and wouldn't at all be seen um, as socialists. But that movement was full of contradictions. And I just think that's how culture thrives and that's how we move forward by allowing the contradictions just sitting with the differences not preserving things but just interrogating them all just seeing what ends up as being good and what needs adapted yeah i really like the phrase in the book where you talk about your you know how before you went on this journey you'd be wearing your otherness and neitherness defiantly like um and you say 
but it being like two fingers to the uh, broken inheritance. But then there's a lovely phrase that you use where you say, you know, what is the soul of an identity, which is a negation. So I suppose even people who are apathetic about politics or apathetic about voting or, you know, despondent about the situation, they're actually, that is an identity in itself that they're perpetuating. So what, what, I mean, do you feel a sense of belonging now with this um, 1798 stuff? Is this what informs your identity or is your identity still complicated and complex or does do you feel yourself the ballast of 1798 in your daily life um i think it's probably a misfit before and i'm still a misfit like so <laughs> nothing's changed in that regard but like the idea of the ghost limb the whole book came about from um coming from this lovely kind of protestant tradition which like i'm a child of the church I don't go to church now, but I kind of look like it's actually Protestantism <laughs> that has shaped me, the ideas and, and the kind of culture there. Um, but always feeling like my politics um, were kind of out of kilter, very oriented to the island of Ireland, very left wing eco-socialism. That's probably what I am, really. Um, and living in these areas where, where that identity wasn't publicly reflected, you couldn't really see yourself in public space. Or like we're talking even in the city centre, I suppose we made the space in the in shops. But um, it wasn't something that you were hearing being reflected back to you by politicians. And um, I guess a lot of people in the book expressed, and I've certainly felt the ghost limb is like a feeling like a pang or an absence or a, like a, a self-censorship, not being able to express yourself freely and fully where you live. So where I had kind of come to in my life, um, before I started writing the book was just screw it all right I'm not I'm other neither I'm an environmentalist and this is all old crap and I don't want any part of it but I, I'm a home bird like and I love like I was born in Newtonards I've lived around East Belfast and I love these places they're absolutely part of me and I just really wanted to be at home. So I thought, you know, I'm not putting all this self-censorship on other people, although everybody in the book has been lundied in, in some ways or others. But I figured at some point I've got to fix this for myself, like uncensor myself and walk towards these ideas um, and walk and try to do some work here to to reconcile myself with this place and where that ended up for me was that I from being other like I ticked the Protestant box delightedly on the last census just realizing oh my goodness there have been people in my town and where I live always who have been like me and there's no statues you know <laughs> around the place to represent that but United Irish history, Labour history, like all of that is under the radar, but absolutely makes sense of who I am and my own story. And then maybe an awkward Annie that I am went, actually, that kind of Republican part <laughs> seems <laughs> to make a lot of sense as well. And that's something a lot of people in the book talk about and struggle with, you know, for some People, the recent conflict is just too raw and just that word republicanism is just too loaded. But whatever way my brain works, I just sort of logically went, well, republicanism is citizenship, not monarchy. Uh, that's that's what I am. And I think actually, like, I'm not trying to be controversial in any way with that. It just seemed to make sense of like putting the two parts back together you know not a rejection not a iron out all the flavor of our areas and all become big one neutral tribe <laughs> as one but like let's do more of the histories and let's do them together layer them up did that sits a bit weird for some people probably sits a bit weird for me as well but i enjoy that to be honest i enjoy the difference and the contradiction even uh, I don't think Protestantism and Republicanism are contradictory. They're birthed in the same historical moment. They just became difficult. It's a long answer to your question. No, no, I, I find that fascinating, I suppose. I'm, I'm jumping to something I had in my head to ask later on, but I'll sort of address it now. So when you talk about that, you know, the terminology or the term Republican, 
being sort of still toxic to some people because of the more recent implications with the conflict. And I don't expect you to answer this easily because it's not an easy thing to answer, I'm sure. What would the people of 1798 think if you transported them into the present day and looked at what... I'm thinking, I don't want to go over old ground with the wolf tones, the band, but I'm talking more about the conflict, the way the conflict was acted out by Republicans. And I'm not specifically asking about Republicans to make a point here, but because it is part of that, they see themselves as part of that lineage. And you have like, you know, the annual um, Bodenstown commemoration and on all those sorts of things. So what would you think would be their interpretation? Now you're asking people from the 1790s to, it's not, I know it's not Jurassic Park, so it's a, it's like a weird concept anyway, but what, what's your feeling? What would their thoughts be about what way Republicanism's played out in, in the North in recent times? I think they'd be a big bunch of Hallians and completely disagree with one another and have <laughs> good old Barney about it over some pints. Uh, I think, you know, some people would have used that language then and seen themselves, uh, like the, that whole democracy and the civic kind of aspect of citizenship is really defining. So I'm quite sure that some of them would be rebirthed <laughs> in 2023. And go, yeah, she's a Republican thing. Don't make total sense. But then the United Irish men and women were, were full of diversity. And then after the act of after the rebellion, obviously, didn't work. Um, that's not a spoiler for anybody. But uh, and then the act of union came in. And I think the United Irish men had a set and women had a set of values that were kind of bigger than what we see as our the fringes, you know, the loyalist and Republican polar ends of our conflict now. They value democracy. Um, they were interested in poverty and ameliorating poverty. They were interested in women's rights. Um, they were striving after an anti-sectarianism. They're quite anti-colonial as well. But even with all of that, some of them went, oh, here, this union. Actually, that um, there's some good reforms coming in. Let's get stuck into those, you know. And I think that a lot of them would have just worked with the political context that, they, well, they did in the 1800s work with the political context that they find themselves in. So there's something quite appealing to me about the, the kind of that deeper set of values um, that the United Irish men and women had. And I wonder how that would play out today. I think that's something that we're always asking ourselves and reclaim the Enlightenment. For me, it looks like voting for the PUP whenever they were having a really kind of vibrant democratic for me socialist moment that I really related to above all of the kind of current pol constitutional politics and it's also why if I was in a different constituency I would vote for people before profit or Sinn Féin or SDLP if I also felt that they were um, anti-sectarianism, working for peace and the same set of criteria. And that probably like is head-pickling for some people to listen to. But to me, it's those kind of deeper values that are, are my compass. And I don't know how they would work it out today. I, I don't think there would be agreement with that. You know, Gareth brings up a really good point there that the the word Republican, um, sort of the hairs in the back of my neck come up slightly. It, it, it it's, it's not that it's I want to attack. It's you're you're primed for some sort of confrontation with the word. Uh, but I've I've studied enough to understand what an actual Republican is, and we've, we've associated that word now with a movement that brought whatever way you want. We got violence to our streets, and it's the same when we're talking about. Uh, thirty-two county utopia kind of thing that the 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 tricolour should still be the flag because the orange is on there for for my community as such. But that was the flag that was draped over the coffins of IRA men who had carried it across these in the shankle. Um, when I was growing up, it, so we have those links. It's how we link words and symbols and music to certain to certain emotions and hold it there and don't see past that first. That first sort of jag, jag in the ribs kind of thing. Um, you, you talk about sort of your your political sort of feelings now towards um, United Ireland, and, and you're involved with Ireland's future as well. Um, 
what they're looking for doesn't exist at the moment. It's not as I mean, Colin Harvey spoke about this that if we're going to do this, we have to reframe everything. We can't just lump six counties under the other twenty six and carry on the way it is with the current system. Neither system, whether it be Westminster or, or Dublin, is working too well at the moment. So I'm going to use the word fantasy, but I don't mean it in a derogatory way. What I want to know is what the fantasy of United Ireland looks like for you. How would it work and how would it welcome everybody and work for everybody? I'd settle for a GP appointment today, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll take that in two gulps, if that's okay. First, like the word republicanism and the emotional jag of it, which um, you described. Um, I'm not telling people that this is the way to be or that this is a thing that you should have a problem with or that you shouldn't. I think all of these words, loyalism, republicanism, centrism, do you know, they, they all land differently emotionally with different people. And there weren't very many people in the book, to be honest, who ended up at the same destination point as me. A lot of us or a lot of my friends finished up the book with that emotional reaction still um, very embedded and and I think that's okay that's just the conflict that we've been through you can't logically untell people to undo that pain people feel how they feel I just have a weird brain and for me that made sense and I thought it, what would happen if you articulated it in that way um, what it has done for me is open up a world of relationships with actual Republicans where it's not a word in my head that I had like a lot of complicated feelings towards at the beginning as well but now when I think of Republicans and Republicanism I see friends and relationships that I've made and again I said I learned this from Philly Mitchell and the Loyalists and that changes everything when it comes off your computer screen and like I was saying to your coffee cup, or like into your life as a as a human relationship. So I guess I've really changed and how I've I've thought about kind of words and language. Try and think about people. I think and it's an experiment with language to see what relationships would come out of it. Right, Ireland's future. Um, I, mm, I like the project that you are part of with the echo chamber is basically a real-time kind of dissection or an analysis of the failures of neoliberal Ireland, right? So I don't disagree with any of that. My idea, when I think of Irish unity, um, there's certain things I personally like about the Irish state. I feel very Irish, um, support for the Palestinian people. There's something about being able to have a civic conversation with itself. But these, like, the, like I'm not telling anybody else that they should like these things about Ireland. I care about socio-economic kind of things and people being well and having what they need to live a good life. And I care about the environment a lot because I think that water, food, energy, all of this stuff is going to directly impact on our socioeconomic stuff. Right. So Ireland's future are there's everybody's saying, right, unity is in the air. What's the plan? Nobody's done what the plan is. So there's people looking then towards organizations to kind of just articulate the plan, just like give us a bit of detail what it could look like. And Ireland's future have stepped into that space. And if you read, like I've been to a few events, and if you read actually their written stuff as well, they actually are making a decent effort to articulate a plan. Now, because they have to be so sensible and like, this is going to be a great plan. <laughs> They're a persuading organization. This plan is definitely going to work, right? So that's what you would expect them to say, right? And it, like, there's a lot of experts, like I am a Hallian, I don't know, but how I have approached invitations from them has been grateful to be asked, um, but also like I, I can't be you know, corporate, I don't maybe share some of these values, but as long as nobody is telling me what to say or what to think and there's not a script, 
then like damn right I'm going to come and be part of like any conversation going because I think the challenges facing not just the north but all of our societies with climate change is just so urgent so at the Ulster Hall thing I think I spoke on a, a panel of Protestants and I said that I'd voted for the PUP against my constitutional preference that I supported unity but couldn't really rally for it because I didn't really know if it would work and why it was nobody talking about the environment and all I can say is they invited me back it might be the last time or they might retract the, the invite after this but um like sort of talked about being omnivorous like in terms of these conversations if people are like interested in, in what I have to say that's frankly staggering and if I have an opportunity I just think we're living through really kind of prescient historical times and of course I would like to say something about that I don't expect other people to approach it the same way as I do um but that's something that I felt that I can be authentic to myself in a space that I'm probably not lining up with this FDI kind of more seamless transition to a neoliberal Ireland, but not what I'm about at all. But actually, when then you go, okay, yes, I'll do this um, event, then you meet people and you go, oh, you're actually quite left-wing as well. You know, people within the Ireland's Future Organisation. And then, like, my mind goes to, okay, so what are the alliances that we can make within that and around that that also challenge it rather than kind of just singing it from the hilltops? So I think, like, a lot of the things that we would want out of the future of our society, would, I think a lot of it would be kind of similar and that's what I'm going to say if I get an opportunity you know. And did you ever think when you were standing down the side of the end shops listening to the Pixies you'd eventually be on the stage at the Ulster Hall and then the well the Odyssey wasn't built back then we we, we couldn't have foretold there, there'd be a venue that size but you're you're going up in gradients it could be um, trying to think of the next biggest venue after the Odyssey but it's getting progressively well, bigger so. I'm going to retire after that um, no <laughs> I was at the time I listened to the Pixies of Born Again singer-songwriter so I think if I'd ever imagined a stage like the Ulster Hall I'd have hoped for a more musical <laughs> yeah so what oh, what you're saying then is that you know what the Odyssey if, if you're if you're asked to you could do a, a song and a bit of a sort of do a performance if, if required do the shine Jesus shine like yeah we've got the, <laughs> that's my repertoire <laughs> well I think the next stage after that will have to be Croke Park maybe get four nights and yeah. yeah get the residents complaining about <laughs> the parking issues and stuff around there when yeah but um, I, I just want to weigh in quickly if that's okay it's an obvious question but you know it's it's one that I, I want to cover because when I when I wrote the book on the Tartan Gangs and, and engaged with the variety of people that I engaged with for, for that, the oral histories for that book, what I find is certain stories stuck with me, certain people stuck with me more than others. And that's not to say that there wasn't value in all the stories, but some of them I still feel in my marrow even now and have affected me. Are there any stories, particularly, or people you met when you were writing The Ghost Limb not saying that there were any better than others, but are there any that have had a deep, deep impact on you, Claire, or have, have stayed with you for longer, had a more profound impact on your thinking? Well, that's an awkward question because most of them were my mates <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or have become yeah. my friends. So I yeah. better not select favourite friends no. um, publicly anyway. But <laughs> um, there's a couple of wee stories in there that really kind of turned everything I thought I knew on my head. Um, one that springs to mind is a tour that Stephen McCracken led um, of the Battle of Antrim. And he's like a McCracken descendant. Um, he tells this story in the book. and It's actually quite dramatic. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I'll tell it for him. He tells it in his own words. So if anybody wants to read that. But anyway, he was he's very anti-sectarian guy. Do you know, just straight as a die. Calls it like he sees it with like <laughs> no fear or favour and we were on this Paul of Antrim tour and you know we'd been to Malosk which in James Hope's grave he's great kind of weaver kind of early socialist you know Irish where we were all doing well 
And then we went to Roughfort and we all kind of drove down in a convoy of cars because it was during lockdown. And Roughfort is where the United Irish Men assembled um, for the Battle of Antrim, one of the points they assembled. And there's a big oak tree there, like a tree of liberty. The United Irish Men were into oak trees. And it was huge. And across the road from that, there was a kind of wall about a metre up. And then a few metres back, there was an orange hall that was kind of sitting um, in kind of decay. There was no roof on it. And being the Hallian that I am, I climbed on the wall to get a good photo of the um, the Liberty Tree. And as I was up on the wall, we'd only been there a few minutes, this white van pulled in to the middle of our group. And these guys got out and they said, what do you think you're doing with? And um, one of them came up to me on the wall. I said, I'm really sorry. I was just taking a photo of the Liberty Tree. And he said, I know exactly what you were doing. And oh, uh, I jumped down off the wall. We all scrambled into our cars and went on to the next site. And we were all a bit kind of shaken up about that. Like we've just been turfed out. <laughs> what did we do? What was the issue? Um, it became clear that it was the orange men from the, you know this orange hall that hadn't wanted us there. So like that's an encounter that you could just sort of leave in place and go, no, demons, you know, don't want to share history, trying to cover up, you know, the 1798 history. But the people I was with taught me so much because they didn't leave it there. One of the guys, as we went on to the next site, stayed behind and he got chatting to the guys who turfed us out. And they ended up like um, putting in a grant application for some Ulster Scots cultural activities after that. And then this guy followed us on to the next graveyard and he was like, we need to be talking to those guys. You know, they're really interesting. I used to be an orange man as well. And then... After the day was done, Stephen McCracken was, do you know, that doesn't sit right with me. I'm not going to leave it that way. So he contacted the local Orange Order and he brought his friend with them for a meeting. And his friend was a grandmaster. <laughs> and I think they had a two hour meeting and the first part was a bit argy bargy. And then the second part, they really kind of listened to each other and heard what one another was saying. And what they told Stephen, the orange man, was that that orange hall had been burnt out in the 1970s and they were devastated about that and that they were really precious about the site. It was in bad condition. They just, like, it was it was a space that really meant something to them. And there's me on the wall, like a big agent, like, you know, ne next to this kind of very fragile building. And they told um, Stephen all the work they've done in the community, just really ordinary stuff, community centres, Mails and Wheels, whatever it was. And Stephen said that we felt really intimidated, that we were just there doing the 1798 tour. And then they had a good chat about 1798. And Stephen apologised. Um, for us, kind of being in that site kind of quite thoughtlessly, I think. And I apologise to Stephen. And they apologised to us for intimidating us. And oh, we know he's intimidated. I don't want to, they didn't do anything. They just, his words. But I learned so much from that. And then two weeks later, Steve McCracken sends me um, a screenshot of his Facebook page. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen McCracken, for donating all these bottles of Suki squash drinks to our family fun day by the very guy who turfed us out. And I just thought I I got schooled that day. Do you know in that whole experience and what it really means to share history? There's all these parts of 1798 that I love, um, but it's a shared history and we all relate to it in different ways. And that's actually, that's more than words. That's a, a journey to to actually be able to hear and listen and, and respect kind of other approaches to it. And I think they used um, the Orange Hall for refreshments since the last tour, or yeah. were certainly welcome to. And if maybe a few of those guys came along on the tour. So that seems to me a lesson in, in conflict resolution. It's and Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll let Sam jump in here, but I just want to observe something on the back of that, because... Okay, you talk about the shared history, but it also speaks to me about something about daily interactions that we have with other people on, on this island. 
that often we can see something, interpret it in a certain way, get our hackles up, and just that can then reinforce how we already feel. And I know it's easy to sort of say this in theory and in practice it isn't always as easy, but once people get together and talk, that's where you don't necessarily have to find common ground, but you begin to understand more about each other. And that's certainly something I found over the years with my research into loyalism. I had a very one-dimensional view of loyalism, but it was only by meeting people that I began to be educated uh, on on what, what the experiences were like. And for someone like Sam as well, I've learned a lot from Sam about what, what sort of fear he lived in, you know, growing up in the Shankle, which I would never have thought when I was growing up. I would have thought, well, you know, it's just, um, they're all monsters over there. But that wasn't taught to me in the in the home. It's just something I imbibed through different, you know, sort of interactions in primary school and stuff and the stuff other people were being fed. So it's it's definitely when you meet people and you talk to them, you might not find common ground, you might not find a resolution, but you at least are educated on what their experience is if you get into the nitty gritty of it. So I find that, you know, I find that incident when you talk about it there, it's really, really interesting, and it could be a learning template for other people, not to just sort of jump the gun, but to try and engage in, in conversation before um, getting their getting their horns out. Do you I mean- is getting the, the thing that can get you into the space together, you know? We've kind of lost that a little bit. I find 1798 a bit of a magic key in that regard, because like everybody can relate to it in some way or another and it's not loyalists versus united irishmen you know families were divided and diverse and even like a lot of people who would have been on the loyalist there was this kind of sneaking regard for the the bravery and the injustices that were going on at the time and doing the right thing or not the right thing you know but the uh, anyway yeah getting in the room is the yeah i mean i i read that story the same way and I was going to ask that was my next question was about that story um, of those orange men and, and being on that tour because it was one of those things where I thought this could go pear-shaped and then as the story develops you're like there's relationships that have been built on the back of that and it, it, it's been the same all, all the way through my more more adult life um, watching the likes of Billy Hutchison and Tommy Gorman working hand in glove um, and, and for the betterment of, of either community and both communities you know I've seen those those people come together, right? the Schenkel Women's Centre and the Falls Women's Centre, the work that they do across the divide, sometimes in the darkest days, they've managed to keep a relationship going there. Uh, we spoke to Ailey really the other week and so, some of the shared experiences that have went on. Um, the Ulster People's College was a fantastic resource for a lot of that as well. People got together under the premise of, of education, but we're in a room with people they don't normally get in the room with and just having that cup of tea, tea break or the lunch together broke down some of those barriers and I, I like that what you're saying there about the 1798 dividing families when we talk to the to the guys in the tortoise shack and some of the other guys uh, John Barry was speaking about it about the the civil war I mean they don't mention down there a lot of of that shared history who was on what side it's it's one of those things you put in the background and me and Gareth have talked before, and we don't know whether it's still too raw or not, but the likes of the feud that took place in Belfast uh, between UVF and the LVF and the UVF and the UDA in the in the latter stages, um, that's, that's left a lot of open wounds. People don't talk about those time periods. And I don't want to equate the Shankle feud to the 1798 rebellion, but it's more the emotion that goes with it that we know something traumatic has happened, has divided families, but we bury it. Because it's it's just... It's too much hassle to bring up again. You do you do not want to be poking about in that wound. Distress is the word that I often think about. It's not that you're covering up these histories sometimes. You know, Protestants didn't always deliberately bury it. I mean, sometimes they did. But it's distressing. Do you know what I mean? When the family is divided, there's kind of injury, exile, death. You know, like us. That's really hard. And I, I think one of the things I learned doing the book is that you, you can't really you can't really sort it all out and tie a bow on it. Like you don't really need, like you were saying, to to come to a settled kind of place on, on a lot of things because even with shared histories, we all share it in different ways. Our 
our understandings are different. And I, I think that the challenge in the current moment is to find what's shared, you know, and I think, you know, drinking water <laughs> is shared. And I think that uh, making sure the soil has enough nutrients to grow our food, that is shared. I think that setting up community energy projects um, we have so many mutual kind of interests here and I think that a lot of things will be what's it it is solved in the walking or it's sorted out in the building and the doing and as if we can find a way to just be in the same places together and work on things that mutually benefit us um, I still believe we'll get there well, that's a positive note, I think, to finish on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we've, we've held you for a lot longer than I promised to hold you for, to be honest. Um, but thank you very much, Claire, for coming along. This is one of those pods where I think people will take from it what, what they want. Uh, and some people may think that it's a bit niche but I don't. I think it's very relevant if you if you dissect the conversation. And if you certainly if you read the book, there'll be things in there that will resonate with a lot of people that I know. Um just go and have a look at it. The Ghost Slim, it, yeah, work your way through it. It's, it's a good book to be reading. Um, I usually take a week or two to read things that that was, what, four days? Um, it, it just flew through. It was easy reading. So, Claire, That's thank you very much. You're, you're under pressure, Sam. Be honest. I uh, know. I had my homework. <laughs> I had to get my homework done for tonight. I don't know what I'm going to do for next week now. Look, I'm just um, amazed anybody's read it. So thank you for taking the time with it. And thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, Claire. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thank you.